the twenty-ninth day of the month of Ayaru, the king died. Cryptic entry in a Babylonian astronomical diary noting the death of Alexander the Great. Welcome to Very Old Money, a podcast that looks at history through money. Episode 3.1 The King is Dead A quick announcement before we begin. The podcast is available on most podcatchers including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. You can also subscribe to it on YouTube. We have a change today in the source of the coin in the cover art. The coin in the cover art today is from Gemini Numismatic Auctions LLC and you can visit them at GeminiAuction.com. And on with the show. He was king for only 13 years, and he died just before he turned 33. However, Alexander the Great has left an enduring mark in history. An internet meme I saw recently joked that he was extraordinarily humble. He named only 70 cities after himself and only one after his horse. Now many of these cities still exist today or have modern cities not too far from the ruins of the old one. Alexandria in Egypt, thanks to the later patronage of the Ptolemies, was the most successful and is still the second largest city in Egypt. Alexandria in Ariana is now the city of Herat. Alexandria in Arachosia is now Kandahar. Alexandria in the Caucasus, the classical name for the mountain range now known as the Hindu Kush, is modern-day Bagram. Alexandria near Issus is now Iskandarun, Turkey. And the ruins of Alexandria Escate, or Alexandria the Farthest, which was built on the southern bank of the Jaxartes River, which is known today as the Sir Darya River, are close to the city of Kujan, which is the second largest city in Tajikistan. The name Alexander survives as a given name across Europe and Asia and in the Islamic world is generally transliterated as Sikandar. Almost three centuries after he died, Plutarch narrates a story of a young Julius Caesar, another seminal figure of the ancient world who actually has a month named after him in the Western calendar. Julius Caesar was noted weeping on seeing a statue of Alexander in a temple in Spain. And when asked why, he noted that Alexander had had the same age had conquered so many nations. But Julius had all this time done nothing that was memorable. Alexander was one of the greatest generals in history, but his death left open the question of just how good a state builder he was. He was pragmatic and realized that he was ruling a multi-ethnic empire, but in his last year he left a great deal of unease among many in the Macedonian hierarchy. Seeking to fuse Greeks and Persians together, he organized a mass wedding of his officers with noble Persian wives. Alexander himself married the daughters of two of the last Persian kings, the Macedonian, particularly Macedonian royalty were polygamous. And while this was a far-sighted attempt, his generals were not on board. With one notable exception that will be a part of the story, 
all of these wives would be abandoned by their Macedonian husbands after Alexander died. Likewise, while Alexander had appointed many Persian satraps, many of these would be shunted aside or they would play a little part in the civil wars that followed his death. Soon after the weddings in Susa came the death of Alexander's closest friend and possible lover, Hephaestion. Alexander's grief at this was deep and many questioned if he ever recovered from this death. Further irritants to Macedonian sensibilities came as Alexander started adopting Persian customs in his court, most infuriatingly that of proskinesis, which required people to prostrate themselves before the king. Macedonia had been a tribal monarchy where the king was basically first among equals. And in the last 200 years, a Macedonian king who died peacefully in his bed was almost an exception. These affectations did not play well. As Alexander wallowed in drinking parties to temper his grief at Hephaestion's death, a certain paranoia appears to have set in, as many satraps he had appointed to rule the provinces were purged and executed. Restless in Babylon, Alexander was not content to sit and administer his vast empire. It appears he was planning a new campaign west against the city of Carthage. Assuming this was successful, it is likely that Sicily and then Italy would have been the next targets. And this has given rise to plenty of speculation among lovers of history what-ifs. This is the period of the Samnite Wars, when Rome abandoned the hoplite phalanx to adopt the more flexible, maniple-based legion. How would the greatest commander of the Greek phalanx have fared against the legions? Now, the legions, albeit, were still in their infancy, but they were operating on hilly terrain that was more suitable for them. But we will never know. On a macro level, the plan to campaign further west was insane. This would have put immense logistical strains on an empire that already stretched from Egypt to India. Given the previous track record and what we know about events in the future, with the king so far west, the provinces in the east would have revolted. Alexander, it seems, had forgotten the advice given to him by the Indian stage Kalanus, who had accompanied the Macedonian army back from India. Now, Kalanos is probably the Greek version of his name. We do not know what his Indian name was since he's pretty much known from Greek sources. So the story goes that Kalanos had thrown a dried and shrunken animal hide on the ground. And when he stepped on it, the hide pressed down at the point and it rose elsewhere. This happened every time he stepped on the edge. But when Kalanos stepped in the center, the hide lay flat. The lesson Kalanos was giving Alexander was that he should concentrate his authority in the center and not keep waging war on his borders. But by this time, Kalanos was dead. In 323 BC, a few months before Alexander's death, the 73-year-old Kalanos had felt his health failing in Persian weather. Rather than live on as an invalid, he decided to take his life by self-immolation. Even though Alexander and many Macedonians begged him not to do this, he insisted. And so Alexander gave in and the general Ptolemy, who we will hear about a lot in the future, was given the job of building his pyre in Susa. Kalanos distributed all the gifts he got from Alexander and he gave his horse to Lysimachus, another name we are going to hear a lot in the future. After that, wearing a garland of flowers and chanting Vedic hymns, he went to his funeral pyre and to the astonishment of the onlookers did not flinch. 
Kalanos is said to have prophesied Alexander's death by telling him that they would meet in Babylon, even though Alexander had at this point not made plans to go there. Now with the purges, the king going Persian, the prospect of never-ending war and campaign and no time to enjoy the wealth won in the last decade, the speculation that some people at the top rungs of command wanted Alexander gone has simmered through the centuries. In recent years, books have been written trying to identify the assassin of Alexander. Alexander's mother herself appears to have been convinced that Alexander was murdered, and this drove some of her actions after his death. In June 323 BC, Alexander died in his palace in Babylon. He had fallen ill after a drinking party, and after 11 to 14 days of illness, he was dead. As noted above, poison has been touted as a possible option, as has malaria and the West Nile virus. A decade of rough campaigning, some brutal wounds, and heavy drinking probably did not help the young king's health. However, in death, Alexander left a crisis. If he was poisoned, the assassins do not seem to have planned well for what came after. He left no obvious successor. When Alexander came to the throne, he had eliminated many rivals, and at his death, the only male member of the Argia dynasty was his half-brother, Arideus. Now, Arideus was in Babylon, but he was mentally disabled, which is also probably why Alexander had let him live. At the time of his death, Alexander's first wife, Roxanne, was pregnant, and any son would obviously be a contender for the throne. However, underage Macedonian kings historically had low life expectancy, and there was also a reputed illegitimate son of Alexander named Heracles, but the problem here was Alexander never acknowledged the child in his lifetime. Now, even if it was Arideus or Alexander's unborn son, and at this point nobody knew if it was going to be a son, who became king, a regent would be needed since neither of these two were in a position to rule. However, Alexander had left no guidance on who the regent should be. And this, of course, assumes that the generals would have accepted this decision. The uncertainty and rivalry among the Diadochoi, this is the name given to the rival generals and their families and their friends, this rivalry would result in 40 years of war that history refers to as, as the wars of the Diadochoi, or the wars of the successors. Also participants in these wars, sometimes as pawns, sometimes as actors of the agency, are the women. Alexander left a number of sisters. He left a niece, and he left his mother, and all of them will be a part of the story. The Diadochoi entered into marriage alliances with each other, and the family trees that this resulted in can make your head spin as you try to figure out who was related to whom. However, marriage or blood ties would not be a bar for the pursuit of land, wealth, and power. In many ways, this is not a happy story. Most of the characters in this story, be it men, women, or children, will not have happy endings, and only a handful will die peacefully of old age in their beds. However, the wars of the successors played a seminal role in sustaining the diffusion of Greek culture and wealth across the East. Alexander was a man continuously on campaign who never really got down to establishing a stable government. 
what he did was leave many of the existing Persian structures in place. However, 40 years of intermittent war required the Daidokai to create government structures that could sustain this effort. Now, many of these successors emulated Alexander in founding, renaming, or reviving cities. And again, many of these survive today. Thessaloniki in Greece, Nicaea in Turkey, which is the modern-day city of Iznik, Antioch, which is now Antiaka in Turkey, are some of them that have lasted to the modern day. In coinage, the successors and the Hellenistic rulers after them expanded Hellenistic coinage across the East and into India. And this would have effects on the future development of Indian coinage. Which brings up the coin on the cover art today. This coin is one of the seminal coins of ancient numismatics and this would be minted in parts of the world with the name of Alexander for decades after his death. The coin is a lifetime issue of Alexander the Great minted in Babylon between 325 and 323 BC, so just before his death. This coin is a silver tetradram of 17.19 grams and again was minted in Babylon. So the basic unit of coinage here was the dram or the drachma and a tetradram is four drams and Alexander in his lifetime also issued decadrams which is 10 drams. This coin is minted on the Athenian weight standard and we have not covered Athenian coinage yet but that was one of the most important weight standards for Greek coinage. The obverse of this coin is the head of a young Heracles wearing a lion skin headdress. The first labor of Heracles was killing the Nemean lion. The golden fur of the lion was impervious to attacks. However, Heracles killed the lion after stunning it with his club and then strangling it. With the advice of Athena, he used the lion's claws to skin it and after that he wore the lion's skin as a coat. The reverse of the coin has the name Alexander in Greek as Alexandroi and with the image of Zeus on a throne facing left and holding an eagle on an extended right hand and his left hand is resting on a scepter. In the left field in front of Zeus there's a B above the letter M and there is a monogram under the throne. Since this coin type will show up time and again on cover art through the season, let's talk a bit about the iconography. As Alexander went from success to success, he started identifying himself as the son of Zeus rather than his father Philip. In this, he was encouraged by his mother Olympias, who had a strained relationship with the husband, and she insisted to Alexander that he was actually the son of Zeus. Now, this follows a common motif in Greek mythology, where the philandering Zeus fathers many a hero by cuckolding their putative father. Since Heracles is the son of Zeus from a human mother and from a similar interaction, it is possible that Alexander is again asserting that he is the son of Zeus, who is depicted on the reverse of the coin by identifying himself with Heracles. Now whether the coin shows a portrait of Alexander himself in the form of Heracles is debated. Now I must note here that Alexander's uncle and grandfather also minted coins with Heracles on the obverse. The Heracles there is generally bearded but on some coins of Alexander's grandfather he is not. 
and now to my untrained eye, the portraiture there bears some similarity to the Heracles and Alexander's coins. Now there's a simple reason why Heracles shows up on Macedonian coinage. The Argea dynasty claimed descent from him. As a result, it can be easy to overstate that Alexander is claiming to be the son of Zeus in this coinage. However, I will close out this conjecture by noting that neither his uncle nor his grandfather placed Zeus on the reverse of their coins. The reverse imagery on those coins is typically, but not always, related to Heracles, generally with his bow and his club on the reverse. So given Alexander's repeated assertions during his lifetime that he was the son of Zeus, it is possible that he was claiming his divine ancestry with the image on these coins. When Alexander lived, putting living people on coins was considered impious in the Greek world. Now, we had already passed this point in Western Asia Minor. You had a couple of kings who had already put their faces on their coins. But as a general rule in the Greek world, you did not put living people on coins. Now, this will change by the end of the wars of the successors, as gradually the Hellenistic monarchs started putting their own images on their coins. And after this period, royal portraiture becomes a common feature on Greek coins from the Hellenistic kingdoms. Now, in some cases, the portraits here are idealized, but you do get coins in the few cases where the kings live long enough for this, where you can actually see the monarchs aging in their coin portraits. Now, it is likely that later generations assumed that the portrait of Alexander on these coins, which were still being issued by some city-states a couple of centuries later, was his lifetime portrait. The portrait of Alexander in the famous Alexander Mosaic, which is a Roman floor mosaic originally from the House of the Fawn in Pompeii. A picture of this mosaic is on the website. It is dated between 120 and 100 BC, and it shows Alexander charging at the Persian king Darius III at the Battle of Issus. And the portrait of Alexander here bears a lot of similarities to the portraits on the coin. Now, the mosaic itself is believed to be a copy of the Hellenistic painting of the early 3rd century BC, and that is long enough for people to have started assuming that this was a portrait of Alexander on the coins, because by this time, they were seeing their own monarchs on the coins. Again, it is not established that this is actually a lifetime portrait. Many people assume that is so, but it is something that is disputed. Now, as I noted, this coin type was minted during Alexander's life, and after his death, which brings up the question, how do you know which is a lifetime issue? Luckily for us, Nimisvatus have been at work on this, and they have cracked the puzzle. The seminal work on this was by Martin Jessup Price, who wrote a two-volume work called Coinage in the Name of Alexander the Great and Philip Aridaeus. In this work, Price painstakingly identifies die types, mint marks, hoard fine spots, and he creates a chronology of coins in Alexander's name and identifies the time period these coins were issued. And this is how you break up lifetime issues and posthumous issues and a general time frame when these were issued. Now, generally, when you see one of these coins listed, it will carry a price number in the listing, which refers to the catalog number in Price's book. Now, I cannot imagine the time and effort it took to put together the 637-page catalog. And there have been some revisions over the years since this was published but generally the price catalog system holds true. So if you have access to the price catalog, the coin today has a price number 3619. 
As I noted in the last episode, this season will look at Alexander and his father Philip before delving into the chaos that followed his death. Once we get back to where we started the season, that is Alexander dying in Babylon, we'll take a break and have an episode looking at Oliver Stone's Alexander before jumping into the wars that are sometimes referred to as the funeral games. So the next episode, we will start with Alexander's Philip, because Philip is the man who created the military machine that makes Alexander's wars of conquest possible. I would like to commit to getting the episode up next week, and I will try to do so. Unfortunately, it will not be a hard commitment. In the United States, we have the Thanksgiving holidays coming up soon, and that may cause the podcast to go on hiatus for a couple of weeks. After that, I hope to have a regular schedule through the new year. So, we will see you next time as we start the story of the young man who will become Philip II of Macedon in episode 3.2, A Hostage in Thebes. If you like this episode, please give this podcast a 5-star review on iTunes or the podcatcher from where you access this podcast. This is a new podcast and good reviews are essential in getting the word out. Thank you again for your support.